Good morning, everyone. Nice to see you on this snowy Sunday morning. If I've not met you or you're not familiar with my face, my name is Dan Knust. I'm the high school pastor here at the church. Pastor Dan took this Sunday off, so I'm going to take over for this Sunday. And I thought, you know, I was thinking about this this morning. I thought a couple weeks ago he told you how much he loves you and how you're like the best congregation ever. I don't know if that's true if he turns me loose on you guys on a Sunday morning. You know what I mean? <laughs> I don't know how much he does love you. So anyway, grateful to be here this morning. I got to tell you, have you ever had a night where you just, for whatever reason, there's no stress, there's no worry, you just can't sleep? Yeah, that was me last night. And I've had no coffee. So I'm a high school pastor with no sleep, no coffee on a Sunday morning. Welcome to church. Glad you've joined us this morning. So hopefully this will go well. And I use that word hope, which I'll be talking about here in just a few minutes. But I want to introduce this this morning in a manner of kind of looking back at last week, because we're in the Advent season. And for those of you that don't know Advent, and I didn't know this for a lot of years, the word Advent literally means arrival. That's all it means. So what we're doing is we're, we're anticipating the arrival of our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ, on Christmas morning. Last week, Pastor Dan talked about the first week, and you see it up here on the edge of the, on the, edge of the wall that the ladies did such a good job on. We've got love, hope, joy, and peace. Pastor Dan spoke last week on this idea of love, God's love, and that is what basically fuels everything else, the hope, the joy, and the peace that we look at in this Advent season, all revolves around the love of God. And Pastor Dan, he didn't pay me to say this, he probably should, because I'm going to talk nice about him for a second, he did a, a, just an amazing job last week of really taking this idea of God being holy, love. His holiness, when we look at his holiness from that perspective, we, we get a deeper understanding of the extent that he went to, to to love us the way he did by sending his son. So when you, you really have to get your arms around this idea as we walk into Advent, really of God's holiness, because that's really where it all starts. His holiness is set apartness, his being God and we're not, but he loves us in this dilemma, if you will, that he has with the sinner. He sent his son because he loves you. So this morning, what I want to do is I want to extend that thought and I want to look at the second week of Advent, which is on hope, this idea of hope, hope in God or hope in whatever we're shooting for. But again, all this, all this idea of, of Advent means is it just should get us to look at the manger, this thing behind me on the stage, to get us to look at this baby in the manger in a whole new way. And I'm hoping this morning I can get this idea of hope across because I'll be honest with you, this has been one of the toughest messages I have ever had to put together since I started preaching at the church eight years ago. And I talked to Tanner about this a little bit on Thursday. I left and I got, I got nothing, dude. I'm like, I'm a blank slate at this point on Thursday afternoon at four o'clock when I left the church. And Tanner made this comment to me and I thought it really stuck with me. He goes, it's kind of like God going, go ahead, try to explain me. I dare you. It's like last week with Pastor Dan trying to explain God's love and trying this morning to get this idea across to you guys within what, 35, 40 minutes of what it is to hope because I think our world needs it. So God said, okay, figure me out. You can't. It's an impossible task in a way, but we got the scripture and the witness of the Holy Spirit on our hearts to confirm what we believe in our hearts. But I really believe you guys today, we need hope. Amen. Our world needs hope, but we don't need hope in the way the world looks at it. Listen, the biblical hope is this, the expectation that all of God's promises to us and for us will soon be realized. That's biblical hope, that all of God's promises for us and to us will be realized someday, and we're going to look at some of that this morning. So when you look at that idea, it's also this, it's trusting 
and waiting on God. We sang about that this morning. It's waiting on God. Some of you know, um, back in the summer and early fall, I went. I had COVID, and I actually had COVID pneumonia, and I had a tube hanging out of my nose, and I was sucking on oxygen for three or four weeks. And I remember sitting up, my wife knows this, and I remember sitting up one morning on the edge of the bed, and I was, we, had, we had decided that, not knowing what the outcome would be, that I was going to wait on God. And I was going to be content right where God had me. I was choosing to be content in Christ, in my relationship with him. While I was sitting in the chair, and while we were going through everything we went through, we just chose that we were going to be content in Christ, and we were going to wait on God. And I'll talk a little bit more about this later on, but I sat up on the edge of the bed one morning. I'm like, Lord, I'm a, I'm, if, you know me for, if you've known me for more than five minutes, I don't sit around a lot. And I'm really busy, and I'm always looking to do something, right? <clears throat> I sat up on the edge of the bed one morning. And I said, Lord, I, I want to be content in you. I want to wait on you. And, but I want to be able to do something. I want to be able to, to invest some part of me in this thing that we're doing, getting through COVID. And he goes, you are doing something. You're waiting on me. If we're waiting on God, it is not, not us not doing anything. That idea of waiting is a verb. <clears throat> we're actively waiting on God, and within that, we trust him. Does that make sense? So as you look at this idea of hope, a biblical hope is knowing. I heard Adrian Rogers, who is a pastor, who's passed away years ago now. He, made, he said this comment, and I'll never forget it. I heard this probably 10, 15 years ago. He said, Christian hope is not a wish for. <clears throat> it's not a, an idea of positive thinking. A Christian hope is a promise. It's a certainty in God's promises. I want you guys to realize, too, as I get into this this morning, because the second week of Advent can also be known as the week of the prophets, of prophecy. And some of you may know this, and some of you may not. And if you don't know this, it's, it, I remember the first time I, I heard this and studied this. The Bible is a very trustworthy book, yes? We know we can trust it, right? But there's a way that we can prove that we can trust it. It's through fulfilled prophecy, there is no other spiritual book ever written on the planet, ever, that had dares to, to say a prophecy, something prophetic from God to humans, and then have the audacity to actually fulfill it in its given time. So when you look at the Bible, you guys, you can rest, rest certain that God's promises are real, and they are fulfilled promises, some of them. They're fulfilled prophecy that we can point to as Christians and go, that's why our book is trustworthy. Yes, 40 different authors, three different continents, three different languages, over 1,500 years. All that's true. Archaeological finds prove the scripture over and over to be true. So we can rest assured in the hope of God. See, in Israel, in the Old Testament, he was known as the hope of Israel. Is he your hope? Because I really believe, you guys, we are, we are desperate for it in this world today. And when we're walking around as Christians, I want you guys to understand, if we really believe this idea that we can hope in the things of God, we can hope in our salvation, we can hope in heaven, we're not there yet, but we hope in these promises, we can hope that God, we can hope in the idea that God said he's not going to fix everything for you, but he promised to go through it with you. We serve a God who promised to be in everything that we go through. I will never leave you nor forsake you. That's what he promises us. So when we walk around as Christians in today's environment, we've got to know that this idea of our hope, I hope, permeates our culture because that aroma of the hope that we have in Christ will draw people to us. And then when they draw to us, we can do what Peter says. When they ask, you can give a reason for what? The hope that lies within you. 
It's hope in Christ. It's not hope in a circumstance. It's not hope in something. It's hope in Christ. It's a biblical hope. So that's really, when you look at the Advent season, that is such an important thing for us to get our arms around because that cradle behind me, what we're going to talk about this morning in the book of Isaiah, and I'm going to go through several scriptures, but if you want to follow along, it's going to be in Isaiah chapter 7 to begin with. I want us to really get our arms around this idea that we can trust in this hope. While we're waiting, we can wait with hope. And that's what we want to get into in this Advent season this morning. But there's something else that comes along with this. And it's, we find it in the book of Hebrews. Don't turn there. I'm just using this as a reference. Hebrews chapter 11, verse 1. Here's the deal. Faith, faith is which gives us hope. Substance of our hope is found in our faith. And we see this played out in Hebrews 11, uh, chapter 11, verse 1. It says, now faith is a confidence in what we hope for and the assurance about what we do not see. We can hope in the promises of God because they're true. Some of you will remember this phrase, hope and change. Hope and change, right? Hope. Here's what you can hope in. Your God never changes. Amen? He doesn't lie and he never changes. We don't have to have hope and change. We have hope that our God will never change. So the things that we're looking at this morning are true and they're for us as well as they were the Israelites almost 3,000 years ago now. So I want to have you guys turn, if you would, and with the prophet I want to look at to see this this morning, to kind of play out this idea of hope is found in uh, the book of Isaiah, which was written right around 700 BC. The book is written to call the nation of Judah back to God, to get back to the things of God. But also Isaiah is, it's such a deep book. When you study this thing, you'll find things in this that make your head, scratch your head. Isaiah also points to the Messiah in the fulfillment of the kingdom of God several times throughout the scriptures. And again, they're fulfilled prophecies that you're looking at, several of them. Isaiah also, and I, I caught this, Isaiah urged the people to take care of the poor and the needy and follow God. Sound familiar? Every Sunday morning, Pastor Dan gets up here, take care of the poor and the needy and follow God. Act like a Christian, walk with God, read your Bible, pray, do the disciplines, and love God. But it's in this Advent season, we have to understand also, as I've been talking about this morning, the hope of the Israelites was experienced in the Old Testament, but they were hoping for a Messiah that would take care of their enemy. That's really what the hope, as you look at the Israelites through all of this, what's going on, that's what they were hoping for. So I don't know what you're hoping for this morning. As you sit in your chair in church on Sunday morning, I don't know where you're at in your life. I don't know what you're hoping for. But I want you to realize when you hope in Christ, it's not wishful thinking. You might be hoping for a new job, a good report from the doctor, financial issues. You may hope that you can get together with your family this Christmas. I don't know what it is that you're, you're leaning on this morning, but I want to take you from a wishful thinking and just an optimistic perspective, <clears throat> and I want to take you to a place where you can hang your hat on the peg that is Christ, and you can hope, and you can, in the midst of the worst circumstance that we'll look at this morning, you can have hope. So I'm going to look at three things, because here's what I do know. Hope can change my perspective. So whatever perspective you rolled in here with this morning, it's like Tanner prayed earlier. This may be a hard place for you. You may have had a tough week, and you're like, Dan, I don't want to hear this this morning. But you're here, and I pray God speaks to your heart, because hope can change your perspective if you're hoping in the right person, and that's Christ. Not hoping in a circumstance, but a person. So this morning, I want to look at three things out of the book of Isaiah, we're going to look at chapter 7, chapter 9, and chapter 61. 
if you want to follow along or write those down in your notes <clears throat> so you can be like the Bereans and check me later on some of this, which wouldn't hurt. I want to look at three prophecies. The first prophecy is the coming of the Son. The second one, S-O-N. The second one is this, the, the character of the Son. And the third one is the conduct of the Son. Because I thought this morning, I thought, okay, we got this idea of hope, and we're supposed to be hoping in the God of Israel, right? We're supposed to be hoping in him, but who exactly is this, and what's he going to do? If we're hoping in him, who is he, how's he described, and what's he going to do? That's where I kind of got my arms on this. I thought, if I want to know or understand this, that would help me, so hopefully it helps you. So the first point is this, the coming of the Son. I want to put this into context, and I hope I got this right, because in my studies with Isaiah, it's, it's pretty deep stuff. Right before we're going to read in chapter 7, verse 14, Isaiah is talking with King Ahaz, and King Ahaz has this issue. He has the northern tribe of Israel, because the, the, the kingdoms are split. He has the northern tribe of Israel, and Syria, hear my words, and Syria want to attack him because they want him to jump on board. They want Judah to jump on board with these two tribes to take on the Assyrians. And the Assyrians are just monsters of people. They're horribly bad. They're not Israelites. They're not God's people. They're just horrible. Well, Ahaz goes along, and he doesn't want to do this. He thinks this is a bad idea to buy in with Israel and Syria because he doesn't want to play along with them because they've already attacked him and tried to pressure him into playing along and attacking us Syrians with him. So Ahaz gets this idea that later on he's going to go ahead and he's going to give a king's ransom to the Assyrians to attack, to get on the side of the bad guy, the big bully, to take on the northern tribe of Israel and the Syrians. So in this, you see this quandary going on. And what Isaiah tells him to do, what Isaiah tells King Ahaz to do, he says, hey, ask the Lord for a sign. Ask the Lord, what should you do? So Isaiah is unique because he can go to the king. Not a lot, some of the prophets didn't have that luxury. But Isaiah goes to the king and he says, King Ahaz, ask God for a sign. Oh, well, King Ahaz is a little bit pious. I don't, how dare I test the Lord, he says, with a chip on his shoulder. How dare I test the Lord? Basically, what he's saying is, I'm not going to trust God. That's where you see the context of what's going on here before we read our scripture. Is I, King Ahaz says, I'm, it, he's being pious, he's being righteous, he's self-righteous, he's being a, a believer who's got his chest puffed up. He goes, how dare I test the Lord? Well, Isaiah says, you're supposed to ask him for a sign. The prophet told him that. He pushes back because he didn't trust God. And you see him not trusting God in his behavior because he's trying to manipulate this whole situation by paying off the, by paying off the Assyrians. So that's where we pick up in chapter 7 of Isaiah, verse 14. Isaiah writes this, Therefore the Lord himself will give you a sign. So King Ahaz says, Oh, how dare I test the Lord. And Isaiah says, Okay, therefore since you won't do that, the Lord himself will give you a sign. The virgin will conceive and give birth to a son, and you will call him Emmanuel. You guys, I want you to put yourselves in the scriptures. I often try to tell this to the high school kids too. Just for a minute, let's pick ourselves up and put ourselves in the Old Testament. And look at what's going on. We're being attacked by all directions in, Ju in Judah. This is not a good time. It's a very dark time. It's a very hard time. But here's what Isaiah says. There's hope. There's hope. No matter what you're going through or what you're experiencing right now, there's hope. As long as you keep your eyes focused on God, there will be hope. And there's a dawning of a brand new day. So the Lord will give you a sign, he says. And that sign that he gives them, if you can look at it this way, it's kind of a roadmap for the Israelites. They're not there yet. When Rachel and I would raise our kids, we always try to do this with our kids. And I do this a lot with high school kids as well. I try to raise them two years ahead of where they're at. 
same standards and same everything. But that way, if I can raise them two years ahead of where they're at, when they're traveling this road of life, they come upon that road sign that we've taught them to watch for, and they can be like, oh, I've had my son call me back several times. Now that he's an adult, he's, he'll be 30 this year. And he called me back several times. He goes, thanks, Dad. I'm like, for what? He goes, I finally get it. He says, I finally get what you were trying to teach me back then. Sometimes it takes a long time. And in this case, it took almost 700 years. So get your arms around this family. 700 years before the birth of this baby in a manger, 700 years plus before it happened, it was prophesied and fulfilled in the New Testament. That should make our head hurt, shouldn't it? I mean, that's amazing when you think about that. That gives us hope. This is one of the clearest prophecies of the promised son that would come and that, that he would come and deliver his people. And this, this verse gives the, new, the nation of Judah hope. And I'm praying that this verse this morning and seeing that it's fulfilled gives us hope as well. Where we see the fulfillment of this is in uh, the book of Matthew, chapter, I think it's chapter 1, verses 20, 21 through 23, I believe. But what this is, when you look at the context of this, this scripture that I'm about ready to read is in the New Testament, fulfilling the, what had been prophesied 700 years before that in the New Testament when Joseph, because Joseph was uh, engaged to marry Mary, right? And Mary comes up pregnant and Joseph's like, he's a good, righteous man. So he's going to quietly divorce Mary, it says in the scripture. Well, the angel visited Joseph at night before that happened. And here's what the angel said to Joseph. She will give birth to a son. And you are to give his name, give him the name Jesus, because he will save his people from their sins. All this took place to fulfill what the Lord had said through the prophet. The virgin will conceive and give birth to a son, and they will call his name Emmanuel. And many of you know Emmanuel means God with us. We just sang that this morning in that last song, didn't we? How, how this fulfilled the law of the prophets. The law and the prophets were fulfilled in this moment. So in Matthew chapter 1, you see the fulfillment of something that happened 700 years before that. That sign of prophecy, those prophecies continue all throughout the Old Testament with the prophets. Isaiah is one of many. These were difficult days for the Israelites, you guys. Very difficult days. But with the coming of the Messiah that Isaiah was talking about, it gave them a future hope. And that future hope means we can hope right now in the future if you turn that around on itself. It's the same for us today, isn't it? Especially this Christmas season. Leaning into this idea of hope, this should give me an encouragement in my heart. It should give me an encouragement that everything's going to be okay no matter what I'm going through. Waiting is never easy, is it? Is waiting easy for you? It's not, is it? But it's possible if we keep our eyes focused on the Lord because in the book of Hebrews chapter 12 at the end, like verse 4 or 5, it talks about if we keep our eyes fixed on the author and the finisher of our faith, we will not grow weary in our well-doing. In other words, we won't stop. We won't quit. We won't give up. We won't grow weary as long as we keep our eyes focused on the Lord. That's the main thing because here's what we know. God's timing is perfect, isn't it? We don't like it sometimes when we're going through it. It's hard to understand. And we're like, Lord, where are you? And how come this isn't happening in my time? But God's time is only always perfect. This idea of Jesus coming, the child, the son coming, it, there's two things as critical as the coming, and that's when and how he came. Those two things are as critical, and you see those in this, in this scripture when God's timing is perfect, because in Galatians 4.4, it says this, but when the set time had fully come, God sent his son, born of a woman, born under the law. When the time had fully come, 
God's timing is perfect, isn't it? Every single time we can look back over our shoulder and we're very thankful that he was there when he was. And how he was born was as important. He was born of a virgin. This is to fulfill the, what was written in the prophecies. He had to be born of a virgin to fulfill these prophecies. But also, he's the second Adam. He does not have Adam's bloodline because the Holy Spirit, the power of the Holy Spirit came upon Mary and she conceived. So he is not in the human bloodline. Pastor Dan talked about this last week, how Adam is the federal headship. He's the, he's the head of all the human race. And because he inherited a sinful nature when he sinned, he, he got that sinful nature. Guess what? Thanks, Dad. We all got the same thing. Jesus did not. But see, watch this. Adam at one time did not have a sinful nature either until he ate the fruit and he sinned. Jesus doesn't have a sinful nature. He comes in, but he has to be born of a virgin because it's, it's part of the scripture, and that way he's the second Adam. He's not part of that bloodline. But something else struck me that we sung about this morning. King of heaven, come down. See, this idea of how he came is as important as anything else because Jesus Christ came down from heaven to earth. He left his throne in heaven, and he came down to earth. You know why? Because he loves you. He came for you. This may seem kind of hokey, and it may be, seem kind of goofy, but I got a statement that's stuck in my head. Our reason for the season is Jesus, yes? We walk around nodding our head at that all the time. Reason for the season is Jesus, right? Can I add to that just kind of a Danism, if you will? Jesus' reason for the season is you and me. You understand that? Jesus' reason for this season is us. That's why he came. That's what he did when he came from heaven to earth. He left his throne in heaven out of obedience to the father who sent him to earth, being born in a manger in the form of a child, God incarnate, because he loves you and he wants to have a relationship with you. And he gives you the opportunity to be redeemed back into that relationship through our savior. So when you're looking this year at that manger scene, yes, the reason for the season is Jesus for us, but his reason is you. That's why he came. Second point is this, the character of the son. So if you want, turn to Isaiah chapter 9, and we're going to be looking at, I'm going to, I'm going to go through 1 through 6 right now, and we'll finish up with 7 in just a little bit. The character of the son, because now we know he's coming, but Isaiah says, okay, in chapter 7, he's coming. In chapter 9, because he's pretty vague at this child, what it's going to be like in chapter 7. He doesn't say much other than he's going to be born of a virgin. So in chapter 9, we get to hear what the character of this child is that is coming. What characters does this child have? So you look at this. I'm going to read um, 1, 2, and 6 right now. So it says, nevertheless, there will be no more gloom for those who are in, in distress. The people walking in darkness have seen a great light. On those living in the land of deep darkness, a light has dawned. For a child is born to us, a son will be given to us, and the government will rest on his shoulders, and his name will be called Wonderful Counselor, Mighty God, Eternal Father, Prince of Peace. In the context of this, he is proclaiming the redemption of Israel through the works, the titles, and the blessing of the Son who will come to rule the earth and reign in blessing and peace eventually when he comes again. So when you see this, that's what's going on with this. Isaiah keeps with this idea of darkness and light, light and darkness. You see this as he's prophesying to the, to the, to the tribe of Judah here through this. And it struck me, and in verse 2 it says, and there will be a great light. And again, we see this, pro this prophecy fulfilled in the New Testament in John chapter 1, verses 1 through 5. 
It says this, in the beginning was the word and the word was God and the word, the word was with God and the word was God. He was with God in the beginning. Through him, all things were made. Without him, nothing was made that has been made. In him was life and that life was what? The light of mankind, of all mankind. The light shines in the darkness and the darkness has not overcome it. See, that light is a person. That light is our Savior. That light is Jesus Christ. And it strikes me, and I hope I'm right on this, and Pastor Dan will, will have a talk tomorrow morning if I miss this, okay? Before you're a Christian, you have no light. Do you understand that? Before you're a Christian, you're not a good person. You're separated from God. There's no good in us because only God is good, Jesus says. So if there is no light in us once we become a Christian, then we're light. And that light is the light of Christ. I hope that makes sense to you guys, because when you look at this darkness idea, I thought about this, we're going to be coming up on the Christmas season pretty quick, and Jessica on Christmas Eve will more than likely close with the song Silent Night. And one of my favorite things to do is in this room when we close down all the lights in the room, and Pastor Dan and I and Tanner will be standing up here in the front of the room, and we have our candles, and all of a sudden in the darkness, one candle's lit, then another candle's lit. One person becomes a Christian, then another person becomes a Christian, then another person becomes a Christian. And in the darkness of this room, light permeates that darkness. But you got to understand, you guys, one light that entered the world in deep darkness is what Isaiah says. And that's our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ. So again, we have hope. But if you can be a light at work, if you can be a light in your family at Christmas, you may be the only believer that's in the room. But remember, your light, Christ's light in you, will permeate that darkness. And that aroma will be drawing to people. In the first few words of this, uh, verse 6, you see two things as well. And I'll touch on these real briefly. It says, for a child was born to us and a son is given to us. You see two things here. The humanity of Jesus and the deity of Jesus. See, I think sometimes we forget that Jesus is the God-man. 100% God, 100% man. And you see it with Isaiah talking about it right here. Because the humanity is... It says, a child will be born to us. And in John 1.14, it says this. In his humanity, the word became flesh. And the word is Jesus Christ. The word became flesh and made his dwelling among us. See how that breaks down? When you look at Isaiah, you can jump right into John. And you see the humanity of Christ. But you also see the deity in that. When he says, for a child is born to us, that's his humanity. We see that the Jesus became flesh and dwelt amongst us in, chapter, in, in John. And then a son will be what? So first, the child is born, that's the humanity, but second, a son will be given to us. And everybody knows this scripture for the most part, John 3, 16, for God so loved the world that he, what, gave his only begotten son. Make sense? Old Testament prophecy, New Testament fulfillment. God's promises can be trusted. I heard it put this way, when you look at those two things, it's a pre-existent deity that Jesus was... He existed before he was born. It's the craziest thing in the world, but he, was, he existed before he was born as a baby, so we get our arms around that. Next, I want to look at real quick here in the next few minutes, I want to look at, I want to look at the latter part of chapter 6 where we see now we see the character of this son that is to come. And the first one is wonderful counselor. And I will tell you that I've had experience with counselors in the past, and most of us in this room have talked to someone at one time. Not all counselors are wonderful, are they? A lot of counselors aren't worth the salt that they're paid. Make sense? They're not worth listening to a lot of times because they're leading you anywhere but to the cross. They're leading you inward. You can do more. You can do this. You can take care of that. No, I can't. That's why I'm here. 
If I could take care of it, I wouldn't be sitting across from you, right? So a lot of counselors are not wonderful, but you know who is? Jesus. Because Isaiah said he will be called wonderful counselor, mighty God. That idea of wonderful counselor is this. I believe this with all my heart. I've had the opportunity to do some counseling here at the church as a pastor. And I will tell you right now, and I think Tanner and Pastor Tanner and Pastor Dan would back this up. We can only counsel as good as you are honest with us. If you're not honest with us, we can't help you. If you don't tell me the truth on everything that's going on in your life, that's why you're here. We, we, we're not effective. We can't do that. But guess what? If Jesus is a wonderful counselor, guess who knows everything? So if you're, going to the, if you're in prayer going to God to be counseled, he already knows what you're going through. Because he is a wonderful counselor. He understands and sees all things. You can't hide from him. That's what makes him wonderful. It's a supernatural counselor that you have. So my encouragement to you is if you ever go in for counseling, be honest. Just be honest. We're not going to judge you. We're not going to be critical of you. We love you and we want to help you. And we're going to drag you to the cross every single time anyway. Where Jesus already knows what you're going through. And he knows the truth of your life. And the deepest, darkest recesses of what you're experiencing. It says in scripture, his wisdom, he will rule, he will have the wisdom to rule justly. He is wonderful in counsel and excellent in wisdom. That's what it says about him. The next one is mighty God. This child, Isaiah makes it very clear that this child is mighty God. He's not just a baby. He's God incarnate. He is mighty God. Jesus the son, God the father, God the son. Jesus never had to become God. Do you understand that? He never became God. He's been God the Son from the beginning. So when you get your arms around this idea that he is mighty God, he is powerful, he has the power and the grace to make you a new creation. So if you come to the counselor, he is mighty God that can change your heart. If you let him, he can make a difference in you. He has the power to do it. He has the grace to give you that you can live it out. The everlasting father is this. It literally means this. He's timeless. Isaiah is not saying that Jesus is taking over the, the Godhead, God the Father. He's not saying that. Basically, all that means is he is timeless. The Jews looked at it this way. If you look in the Hebrew, it means originator. He's creator. Jesus Christ is eternity. If you want to experience eternity with the Father, that's who you're going to have to do it through him. And then the Prince of Peace. His government is, is one of justice and peace. When he rode into Jerusalem the first time <clears throat> on Palm Sunday, he rode in on a donkey. Normally, from what I understand traditionally, kings, if they were looking for peace, they would ride in and talk to someone on a donkey. <clears throat> if they were looking for war and a battle, they would ride in on a horse. Guess what Jesus is riding the next time he comes back? A horse. You better believe he is. The first time he came in peace to, to the suffering Savior that we may experience salvation and forgiveness of sin, the second time he comes, you better be right. Because I'm always struck that John, I love this picture of John. It says, John at the upper room in the Last Supper leaned on Jesus when they were having dinner in the Last Supper. In the book of Revelation, when you read of what John wrote in there, he fell as if he was a dead man. Because in there, he sees Christ in a different form. He sees the Christ that's going to return. So John got to see both Jesuses, if you will. We're going to as well. He gives peace like no one else in the world offers it because he gave himself he gave himself for us that we may experience the peace that he wants us to have, everybody. Romans 5.1 says, because of Christ's sacrifice, we are restored to relationship of peace with God. He gives it like no one else gives it because he gave himself that we might receive it. That's what that baby came to do. 
peace doesn't mean easy. Please hear me on this. I don't want to be ever confused on this part of it. Peace does not mean that things are going to be easy. It doesn't mean peaceful doesn't mean easy. Jesus tells us you will suffer many things in this world. There will be trials and tribulations and experiences that we do not want to have. But he says, if you will seek me and you will call on me, I will give you the peace of God. Philippians 4 verses 6 and 7 says this. Do not be anxious about anything, but in every situation, by prayer and petition, with thanksgiving, present your requests to God. And the peace of God, which transcends all understanding, will guard your hearts and your minds in Christ Jesus. I love this picture. I studied that guard your heart idea one time. And Paul uses this as a military phrase where you've literally, it's, it's almost like you've got someone standing guard over your heart so that you will have peace and he will guard your heart and mind in Christ Jesus. I love that. I love imagery in scripture. And that image of an angel just standing there, a warrior angel standing before you, standing in front of your heart, guarding your heart, that you might have peace and guarding your mind as well. That's how we get this stuff, you guys. We get it through Jesus because he gave himself that we may experience that. The message of hope was fulfilled in the birth of Christ and it established his eternal kingdom. But how will this be accomplished? Very short and sweet. Look at Isaiah chapter 9 if you've got your Bible open. Now look at verse 7. Here's how it will be accomplished. The zeal of the Lord Almighty will accomplish this. Nobody's going to stop this. The zeal of the Lord Almighty will accomplish this. Do you get that? God is fighting for you. That's how I see this. Call me crazy. Maybe it's out of context. I don't know. But the zeal of the Lord will accomplish this means that he's going to send this child. He's going to be born of a virgin. He's going to be wonderful counselor. He's going to be all these things. Mighty God, everlasting father, prince of peace. And how will all this be accomplished? By the zeal of the Lord. This We can be assured that this is going to take place because God said he would do it. And the last thing you see here, the third point is this, the conduct of the son. And I want to jump all the way over to Isaiah 61 in this because I thought about, okay, what's he do when he gets here? Well, Isaiah's writing this in Isaiah 61. It is a, it was a prophet. He was prophesying of a future messianic age, a time when some will come in the spirit of the Lord and do many wonderful things. So this is what Isaiah 61 brings to us. Isaiah is prophesying of a future messianic age, a time when someone would come who would, with the spirit of the Lord on him and would do many wonderful things. Here's what it says. In Isaiah 61, verses 1 and 2, the spirit of the sovereign Lord is on me because the Lord has anointed me to proclaim the good news to the poor. He has sent me to bind up the brokenhearted, to proclaim freedom for the captives and release from darkness for the prisoners, to proclaim the year of the Lord's favor and the day of vengeance, our God, to comfort all who mourn. That's if you will, that's Jesus's ministry. That kind of describes it. And I only got a few minutes left, so I'm going to jump right into this. We see the fulfillment of this prophecy. The hope that we have now is in Luke chapter 4, verses 18 and 19. Jesus fulfilled this prophecy when he quoted this passage in the synagogue in Nazareth, which is a, such a great story, which I don't have time to get into this morning. But Jesus says this, the spirit of the Lord is on, upon, is on me because he has anointed me to proclaim good news to the poor. He has sent me to proclaim freedom for the prisoners and the recovery of the sight for the blind, to set the oppressed free, to proclaim the year of the Lord's favor. So when you would be in a synagogue, there'd be teachers, pastors, rabbis, everybody's there. Jesus was asked to get up and share a word. He opens up the book of Isaiah and flips right to Isaiah 61. 
And it's, normally they would start where the reading left off or maybe begin in the beginning of a book. Nope, Jesus opens this thing up right to Isaiah 61 and says, this is it. And he tells everybody in the room, today this scripture has been fulfilled in your hearing. Imagine knowing the Old Testament like, we, like the, the Israelites, all the Jews had to know. And all of a sudden, this prophet, this guy who grew up in this hometown, and Jesus says there's no prophet in his own hometown because they didn't believe him. All they saw was the son of Joseph and Mary. That's all they saw in the synagogue that day. How do you see Jesus? When you turn around and you look at this baby in a manger, how do you see him? That's a question that we've got to ponder in our own hearts as we break these things down. But Jesus says, today this scripture has been fulfilled in your hearing. These people had to be like, What? And then it goes on to say a bunch of other stuff, which I don't have time to get into this morning, unfortunately. This verse describes his ministry. He's going to bring good news to the poor. In other words, God will provide what you need, whether you're spiritually poor or financially poor. God's faithful. He will give you what you need when you need it at the time that you need it. He'll comfort the brokenhearted. He will release those in bondage from sin. He will set you free from sin. You no longer have to be a slave to sin, you guys. You don't have to live that life any longer. Do not put yourself back in bondage if you're a Christian by going back into sin. Christ gave his life for you. You are not your own. You've been bought with a high price. We've got to, we've got to keep this idea of who this child is, who this son is that we're talking about this morning. He brought good news for salvation to the broken sinner. That's good news, amen? Because if you're sitting in this room listening to me, guess what? I hope you were a broken sinner, but you have been redeemed. You've been bought with a price. You've been bought by that shed blood of our Savior, Jesus Christ. He said, because of this, for the Son of Man came to seek and save that which was lost. So that baby in a manger, when he grows up heading to the cross, gets what he, he came to do. He came to seek and save that which was lost. And guess what? If you're a Christian in this room, <clears throat> you were once lost. Yes? we've been found. We've been redeemed. We've been saved because of all the prophecies that we read about this morning in scripture. Not only did he do these things, but what strikes me about Jesus, my desire in life, and my wife knows this better than anybody, is to be obedient to God. You see, Jesus was obedient to the Father. This, the conduct of this son who is coming is obedience. He was obedient to the Father when he was sent from heaven to earth. King of heaven come down. And in obedience, he ended up in this cradle behind me as a baby. And he grew up. And, he, and through obedience, he even, it says here, through the obedience of Christ in Philippians 2.8, and being found in appearance as a man, he humbled, himself before, he humbled himself by becoming obedient to death, even death on a cross. I want to be like my Savior. Yes? We want to be like Jesus, don't we? We don't do that on our own strength. We do that by the grace of God. So stop trying and surrender more. He'll help you to get there. But are you willing to be as obedient as Jesus and pick up your own cross and follow him daily? He did that for us. He was obedient to the Father and we should be obedient to him. And we do that through that of picking up our own cross daily and following him. In addition to this, the conduct of the son, and I'll wrap it up with this, is also, as we look back into Isaiah chapter 61, I want to go back and I want to touch on this because, see, we're still waiting. Do you realize we're no different than the Israelites? When they heard that this child was going to be born of a virgin, that happened 700 years later. We're waiting, and you look at this Advent idea of arrival, we're still waiting as Christians. 
but we're waiting for the second coming of our Lord and Savior Jesus Christ to come. So we're in the same situation there, and we're in dark times, and some of these times are hard. And in the waiting, we have to keep hope in Christ, knowing that God's promises will be fulfilled, that one day he will come back to rescue me from this mess we call the world. He said he would, and he's going to do it, but are you ready? Pastor Dan did a masterful job when he went through end times stuff. The most important thing about all the end times conversation is, are you ready? Man, I pray you are. And if you're not, there's no better day than today to be ready. Because we don't know when he's coming back. It makes that very clear. But here's what Jesus quoted. In the words in, in uh, Luke chapter 4, verses 18 and 19, he read to the people in the synagogue, but he stopped before he finished the scripture. He stopped right in the middle. And he stopped with the words to proclaim the favorable year of the Lord. Rolling up the scripture, rolling up the scroll, he said, today this has been fulfilled in your hearing. But he stopped short. He didn't read the rest of it. And the rest of it says this. The next phrase in that verse, uh, Isaiah 61 verse 2 says, and the day of vengeance of our God will come true when Jesus returns to the earth. Jesus came the first time for that part of his ministry, but he's going to come again. And when he does, you better be ready because he's going to come to make things right. And I want to be on the right side of that conversation as a man. I want to be a Christian. I want to be ready when the Lord returns. Because it's very important that we understand this. In Philippians 3.20, our citizenship is in heaven. It's not here. And it says, think of this. Are, it's, can, is this you? And we eagerly await a Savior from there. See, my citizenship is in heaven as a Christian. And I eagerly await a Savior from there. Do you? Do you live your life with an eager awareness that Jesus Christ is returning? See, because I think if we do, it changes the whole conversation as a Christian. I really do, you guys. I think if we really understand that he is coming back, that will help me live more consistently as a believer by his grace. The promises of God are true and trustworthy. And like I talked about earlier, rather than hope and change, we can hope in our God never changes. He cannot lie and he never changes. That's the good news about this. So our hope, we can find our hope in that. Hope in Christ does not disappoint. And as we look into the Advent season, you guys, and we think about this idea of hope, I hope you get what Isaiah was trying to get across to the Israelites so long ago, that it was fulfilled 2,000 years ago in Scripture, and that is left for us today. The Bible is very relevant today, you guys. So I pray in the name of Jesus for all of you who are, here, who are listening to my voice that this Christmas season, this Advent season, this, this idea of hope is deeper for you now after looking at the scripture this way. So I'm going to speak a benediction over all of you, and then I'm going to have Tanner come up and pray for us. And this benediction, if I can put it that way, is found in the end of Romans, Romans 15, chapter 13. And I want to speak what Paul said over, over the people in Rome. He wrote this, and this is for you this morning. May the, God of, may the God of hope fill you with all joy and peace in believing so that the power of the Holy Spirit, you may abound and hope. Tanner, come pray for us. Pray with me. Lord, would you help us as we wait? We're so grateful for the truth that we heard this morning from your scripture, Lord, and I pray that our eyes and our hearts be open to the truth of what we read from Isaiah, who hundreds, thousands of years ago 
wrote what he did and spoke with God and knew what was going to happen, but he had to wait as well, Lord. And I pray that in our waiting for you to return once again, you would give us hope. This is a supernatural thing that we can have, these these ideas, these themes of love and hope and joy and peace. We don't just have them because we try really hard, Lord. We need to gain them from you. And so I pray that you would, by your spirit, give us hope today. For those of us in the room who have found hope in you, Jesus, I pray that whatever else in our lives that we've begun to have hope in, I pray that you would unveil our eyes to their shallowness and their hollowness and to the solidness of your hope, Lord. And for those of us who have not experienced salvation in you, Lord, I pray that you would open our eyes to the light that you are, as Pastor Dan described and as your word described. Lord, I pray that you would unveil to our eyes also just the humility with which those words describe you, because it describes you as a light, but we also know you're a consuming fire. So open our eyes to this hope. Open our eyes to your goodness and your grace and your mercy toward us all in this season, Lord. We want to have hope, and we can only get it from you. So give us your hope, Lord, as we go, so that we can draw others to us and give a reason for why we are still hopeful in the midst of this dark world. Lord, this is our prayer this morning. We pray it in Jesus' name. Amen.